Hey there, listeners. Um, look, I got to tell you, this has been a really weird, intense past four or five days, however long it's been uh, since we sat with John DeLynn and, and did this live broadcast last Friday. So here's what this episode's going to be. Uh, I know there's been like things that were put up, taken down, put up, taken down. Uh the reason for Infants on Thrones taking things down recently was because the file, it was like a four-hour-plus huge file, and when John DeLynn took his down, all the traffic started coming over to us, and it just shut us down. So I'm, um, I've done a couple of things. In, b- before that happened, I started going through and making some changes to what had previously been published. I got about halfway through that when I said, this is taking too long, and I just stopped. You'll hear that in this version. Um, and uh, I'm going to break this into three pieces. So it's mainly the panel discussion from last Friday where we're talking about this secret recording that happened between a general authority, a church historian, and uh, Trevor, um, who you may or may not have heard his interview on, on Mormon Stories. Uh, but you'll hear a little bit from him in here. So it's the, the, the first two parts um, are going to be mainly the panel discussion where I, ha- I have inserted portions of the recorded interview into that kind of infant style. I don't know. <laughs> you come to expect that. And then the third part will just be that recording itself, the conversation between Trevor and the church historian and the general authority. So that's what you're in for today. Neat, huh? Hopefully it'll stay up. You know, we'll see. A factual record as it relates to the church's origins. Everyone should be able to make a conscious decision with all the information on the table. This is Infants on Mormon Stories Podcast. Philosophies of men mingled with... Confusion? You want me to say that? Yeah, yeah. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and here's what you are in for today. Now, several weeks ago, a guy named Trevor had a meeting with his former mission president, who was now, who's now a general authority. With him was also a member of the church history department who's worked on the LDS.org essays and the Joseph Smith papers and other projects. A guy named... Well, we don't, we don't really need his name, do we? Now, Trevor asked them a bunch of questions, kind of CES letter style, and then he secretly recorded their responses. And he handed that recording over to John Lynn to be published through Mormon Stories. So, John reached out last week to several of us infants to join him for a panel discussion about this recording, but we didn't really know what the recording was. We just got on like, okay, all right, we'll do this. So this past Friday, John Hamer and I joined John DeLynn and Lindsay Hanson Park for a live Facebook video cast thingy. Maybe some of you saw it to listen to this audio for the first time, to meet Trevor for the first time, and then to kind of smack down what we were hearing after we had just heard it. So that's what you're going to be hearing today. And we're doing a coordinated release thing between Mormon Stories and Infants on... Or we were until (laughs) after having published this for a day, um, John DeLynn got a lot of uh, negative feedback for the ethics of publishing a secretly recorded audio recording uh, without the consent of everyone that was involved in it. Yeah, it's legal, but is it ethical? And that's a point that we made in the panel discussion, but John ultimately decided to pull it down. Well, 
We're not pulling down the episode from Infants on Thrones. Um, but what I am going to do, I will take the time that it takes, and this is going to take a lot of time, to go through and edit once again to redact out the names of the participants who did not give their consent. Now, I, I recognize that that doesn't make it completely whole and ethical, but I think that this tells an interesting story, and it, it's one that I will talk about throughout the course of this new redacted <laughs> version, uh, updated version of, uh, you know, I called it Why Can't We Be Friends? I mean, there's a reason I called it Why Can't We Be Friends? And part of it is if you're doing secret recordings and not, you know, giving respect to the other side, well, then you really can't be friends. So do we want to be friends? Anyway, I will talk more about this uh, throughout the course of this. But, you know, that's what this is. I'll also include the full recording of the conversation between the general authority and the church historian and Trevor. I'll include that here at the end as an extended Easter egg of sorts. It's like an hour and 20 minutes long, so it's a long Easter egg. So if you want to hear these things basically raw and unedited in the order that this all happened last Friday, then jump over to Mormon Stories. You'll be able to hear that there, unless it gets taken down. But if you want to hear maybe a little more polished, edited version of what we did on Friday, then just keep listening because you're in the right place. And please remember that polishing these episodes like we do on Infants on Thrones takes two or three tons of work. So, you know, you could send us a PayPal donation if you really want to on our website. Also, validation, you know, it's a nice idea, but it's basically impossible. And facts don't matter. I'm kidding, sort of. Hold that thought. I'll probably editor's privilege why I said this later, but for now, let's hand it over to John and Trevor and get started. All right, so uh, talk really quickly about why uh, people are asking, did you get their permission to record the audio? And right. and there's people that are going to say it's, it's unethical to right. record something in secret and to release it um, without their permission. Right. I, we, we touched on this, but just repeat, how do you respond to those concerns? This is a big... And what's, is, what's in your heart? What are you trying to do here? Um, is this a gotcha? No, this is absolutely not. And, I, and, and, and so that's why, I, I mean, obviously, I want to give this up to people that would love to be in the same situation that I was in. You know, maybe ask the same or similar questions that I had, you know, and really just kind of take off the gloves for a minute and really talk real. You know, because like we said, this is not a small thing. You know, this is not a small, you know, community organization here. We're talking about millions of people that literally believe this stuff or just don't even know that these problems even exist. And so, you know, I just think that, um, you know, as much as different people have sacrificed, um, opened themselves up and, and done different things that have helped me, you know, um, kind of get through this hard time. I, I want to be able to contribute to that. And I, and I was very upfront, you know, was saying that, yeah, there's a very high likelihood that they, they don't even know that this recording exists. Um, I had a feeling that I may have known cause I set my phone up on the table and, um, and he kind of distanced himself a little bit. That might've been why he wasn't talking very much. I don't know. Um, but, but, but again, I'm, I'm very, I'm fully aware of that, but I, I hope that um, they can see that this is the sincerity of my heart, you know, wanting to share truth, 
and information and and everything that they said i think they would stand by today so it's not it's not like a gotcha situation at all it's just it's in an open format sharing ideas so let me comment on this um because i really wanted to comment on this in real time uh but uh, the the format did not allow me to make that comment. I, I I follow up with with some similar comments, but you know, I I think that Trevor's intentions are a little clouded, um, and I, I you you can't say that this isn't a gotcha in any way, and you can't say that it's an open dialogue when people don't know that they're being recorded and that you know so if. If Trevor knows that this is being recorded and anticipates that he's going to be giving it to John DeLynn because John DeLynn asks people to record your encounters with general authorities. If they're coming and giving a talk, record it and we'll do something cool with it on Mormon Stories. You know, so I, I think that Trevor probably knew that. He had this audience in mind as he was doing this, but the other two guys didn't. And that's not fair and that's not open. And I... Don't think that they would appreciate, you know, even even if the things that they say they wouldn't um, back away from. You know, there's a a squeamishness for uh, believers to talk with non-believers to try and justify their beliefs because they kind of know it's a no-win game. They they can't convince us to believe when we don't believe. And so there's I, I think there's generally a hesitation to engage in any kind of conversations. And when you go in like this, with a, a secret recording, I, I'm afraid it, it it pushes people away and makes it less likely to have an open conversation um, on the other side of these issues that, than it would otherwise. And, and I think Trevor understands that um, at, at this point as well. And, you know, like I've had this idea for a while. It's a big project. And I, I mean, like... If you're listening to Infants on Thrones for a long time, you know that there's big ideas that we talk about, and sometimes we deliver on them, sometimes we don't. I'm still working on that shown project that I've been working on since Christmas, and by working on it, I mean I'm putting it off as much as possible because it's just so overwhelming to me. But I had this idea of doing a smackdown of the CES letter and trying to get somebody that that is a believer to to be a part of that panel and to have a, a more diverse group that's looking at it and, and really saying, here are the contents of the CES letter. Here's its strengths. Here's its weaknesses. Here's why some people accept it. Here's why some people don't. In order to do that, you've got to have trust with people on the other side that you can have a, a civil conversation about it. And it doesn't just turn into bashing where we go, oh, no, you're wrong for this reason. They go, oh, well, you're wrong for this reason. That's not helpful. We, are, we can already say, these are the things that we disagree on. Let's put that aside and talk about other things. I'd like to try that. But when there's things like this, I think, you know, and first of all, it, that's hard to do anyway, right? I mean, how many of those do we actually have in the Mormon podcasting world? Uh, but when, when these things happen, I think it makes people less because we're betraying trust that's already really flimsy in the first place. And it was actually a very nice and generous thing for this general authority and church historian to take the time to meet with Trevor and to talk with him about his concerns. He, he, where I think that there's a real value in this is that there are so many people who struggle going through a faith crisis. A faith crisis is a 
it's the hardest. It's one of the hardest things. It's just, it's hard. I mean, as far as like first world problems, hard, it's a hard thing uh, to go through and to have the opportunity to sit down with a general authority, with a church historian and ask them questions and hear their answers, I think is something that a lot of people would like to have had and to have experienced. And so for Trevor to have that experience and share that on a podcast like this, it gives it gives that experience vicariously by proxy. You know, we desire all to receive it. We're, we're, we, we were raised where doing proxy work is an acceptable thing, right? So, I you know, I, I think Trevor's still working through a lot of this himself. I think that he has a lot of pain, feels betrayed that the the church leaders say, if you've got questions, come to your church leaders, we've got answers. And then he goes and asks them and, you know, to his ears, they don't have answers. You know, I would push back on that and say, actually, Trevor, they do have answers and you've got to listen to what they're saying and really try to understand what they're saying. And I don't feel like he did that. I feel like he, he, he did a little bit, but moved from topic to topic to topic that's like damn damning topic damning topic damning topic um and you know so it never really was that open dialogue and conversation but to frame this as saying that the leaders aren't aware of the issues and they don't have answers i don't think that's true i think they are aware they're Definitely not aware in as much detail as people who have really struggled with this, and this has been the catalyst for a faith transition. Why would they be <laughs> that that aware? Um, they're, so they're not that aware of it, and their answers aren't satisfying to us anymore because their answers rely so much on faith that it's not about the specifics of the Book of Abraham problems or the specifics of Book of Mormon geography problems or all those things. It's it's big picture. There's a faith that this is God's church, even if it's imperfect. And that's so frustrating for somebody who no longer accepts faith as a valid place to rest your conclusions. But that's, that's us. That's where we are. And I don't think that it's reasonable to uh, superimpose that value system onto them and the, the, to then say they're deficient, they're they're lacking in this area because they do the same thing with us, and they say that we're deficient in what it takes to accept these things as true. We're deficient in the faith area. So, I, you know, we're, we're coming at this from very different perspectives. There's an abyss between us, and I talk about this in the course of the panel discussion. But these are things that I've had on my mind since Friday when we first started doing this. So, um, sorry for the long insert and rant right here. But I'm the one that's editing this stuff. I've been working on this for like four days now. And uh, this, is, this is the way that I want to frame it. Okay. So this is what we're doing. Okay. And as far as you know, is it, is it le- my understanding is it's legal in Utah to record it is. If, if at least one party knows that the recording is happening. Yes, absolutely. And that was one thing that I looked into the day that we were talking about whether we should release this or not. So it yeah. is legal. Okay. All right, Trevor. Well, I really appreciate it. I think this is going to be an important interview to sort of show in 2017 where premium elite Mormon apologetics are, uh, where the general authorities are, and uh, where the church is and where it isn't. I think there's a lot of really powerful things in that interview that we're about to discuss with some amazing people. So Trevor, thanks for joining us. Please keep in touch. All right. Thanks again, guys. All right. Beautiful. Okay, everybody. It's time for the, the SmackDown Mormon story style. And who better to do a SmackDown 
than two of the If It's on Thrones crew plus the brilliant Lindsay Hansen Park. So let's just do a quick introduction and we'll, we'll do ladies first if that's okay. So Lindsay Hansen Park, why don't you just quickly introduce yourself and tell everyone all the good things they need to, to do and follow that you're involved with. Am I the token lady on this podcast? Is that what No, it is? you're not. You're, you're brilliant and that's why you're here. Um, my name is Lindsay Hanson Park. Uh, as John mentioned, I am the assistant director for Sunstone. I'm not speaking as Sunstone today. I'm, I'm just speaking as myself. I'm also the host of the Year of Polygamy podcast where we cover the history of Mormon polygamy from the beginning until now. So I have some thoughts about the polygamy comments today. I bet. I was thinking of you <laughs> quite a bit. Well, Lindsay, welcome uh, and support Sunstone. That's my little plug. All right. So, Glenn, since you're the boss of Infants on Thrones, do I have to introduce you before I introduce John Hamer? Is that the way it works? Is there a patriarchy in Infants on Thrones? We do, we do everything in appointment order. We have to follow each other. <laughs> That's great. Glenn, no, tell but, us. But if, it, but if I think we're going in a scale from um, most feminine to least feminine, <laughs> it's appropriate to have me follow Lindsay because... <laughs> John Hamer is a man's man, okay. much more, much more than I am. All right. So um, I don't know what do you, I, so, I wanted to ask, uh, I wanted to ask Tyler some questions. It's Tyler, right? No, it's Trevor. I mean, we've said it like a million times. Trevor, his name is Trevor. Get with the program, man. He, he, he actually explicitly asked me not to include him in the panel. Um, so sorry. Yeah. Uh, he, maybe he'll, maybe he'll respond in text, but All just right. introduce yourself, Glenn, and tell I us why, Glenn. why you're awesome. I am not awesome. Okay. So. But if it's on Thrones, it's your podcast, right? Along with several other cool people. We've got, we've got nine people, nine infants on Thrones that uh, we have a lot of fun with it. So. All right. Well, welcome back to Mormon Stories. This Thank is you. not your first appearance, I should no. note. Nor Lindsay's. All right. It's welcome, my first Glenn. visual appearance. That's right. You look handsome. You're looking, Phoenix, is, <laughs> Phoenix area no, has don't. been good for you. <laughs> okay. All right. And Lindsay, you've got some hair, go, some hair color going on. Yes, I do. I, I got it dyed red right before I went down to Colorado City. So I looked like a Gentile, quite, quite like a Gentile. So You're looking right. great, looking great. All right, John Hamer, um, uh, you look great as well. So all three of you look great. And uh, <laughs> John, introduce yourself. Uh, well, I've been on several of your programs. We've been friends for a whole long time and uh, also supporter of Sunstone. You and I and, and Lindsay are getting together here in Toronto, which is where I live for a Sunstone very soon. And I'm looking forward to that. To that. Um, I do April, a bunch of work. April, what are the dates? April what? April 8th, right? Yeah. I should be plugging this properly. So Saturday, April 8th. In Toronto. Here, here in Toronto. And then a lot of people are getting together the night before to go see Book of Mormon, the musical. So anyway, it's a wonderful. And the day after Sunday morning, we're going to attend one of your services at Community of Christ. So one of the, some, a lot of people are going to come and see, well, what on earth could John Hamer's church be like? And so you can come to my, my congregation <laughs> if, you, if you so choose. All so, right. yeah. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us, John. All right. I really have nowhere to begin, but Glenn, you really were, were jumping up and down. So do you want to, do you want to start? <laughs> well, I, I, I wanted to, to talk to him about what he really expected um, to come out of that, that sit down interview um, with, with, with the questions. And he mentioned you know, in, in the wrap up there, that he really did want to believe, you know, he really wanted, he was hoping that they would give him something that could help him with his belief. I would need to rebuild that bridge somehow. And that's what I was hoping they might be able to help me with. Because it's not like I need to see an angel of God to tell me this is true. 
but I just need at least the other half of the bridge to be able to bridge that gap. I'm going to be a little bit skeptical about that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he really is sincere that he feels like that's what he wanted. But I, I didn't, as I was listening to this, I didn't hear any times where he was taking what they were offering him and he was accepting it or, you know, really considering it. It, it was kind of like the same stuff. Oh, I've heard that. I can dismiss that and move on to an, another thing. And so uh, a, a lot of the, the, the notes that I wrote are kind of along those lines where I, I, I just feel like it, it gets to a certain point where it comes to faith. Like you're either going to accept these things because your faith says, yeah, I'm going to believe in this or true. Or you're going to say, no, I need more than faith. And when you've got two different people who are uh, it, it, expecting different types of discussions, it just, I don't think that it really goes anywhere. So that, that, that's kind of my overall response. John, John, John okay. Lindsay, then John. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Hamer. Um, so yeah, I was writing notes too, and I'm just going to kind of look at these. First of all, I was really impressed with Matthew Groh's kindness in the interview, and this has been consistent with my experience with uh, church historians. I think these guys are really great. They know their stuff, probably more than the interview even reflected, and which is kind of a bummer that he didn't know that it was being recorded. I think that the, it wouldn't have changed the answers much, but I think that they really are put in a difficult situation. Um, he led with, I don't know if you guys remember, but he led with the idea of truth is everywhere. Truth is everywhere. Right. You know, right. truth, yeah. th there's truth in, in, in Islam. There's truth in Buddhism. There is Confucius right. was a great spiritual teacher. Right. You know, trying to find some common ground, like Glenn was right. saying. And that's absolutely factual in the historical sense. There are quotes from our leaders saying that truth is everywhere. I think, I'm wondering if there's a better approach in this interview because like Glenn pointed out, I think that the stated purpose was to maybe talk about some historical concerns and then the church historian would address those and then everybody would be okay. But we've been in this business long enough. We know that that's not really what was happening in this interview. Uh, um, with respect to the general authority, I think that he was hoping that maybe there would be an answer and it would be resolved and everyone would say, Oh, I can't believe I never saw it that way before. Um, I, I would give advice to anyone who is in this situation talking to someone with doubts or who has concerns. Um, when you're dealing with someone who's doubting, who's lost their faith, you lead with validation first always. And of course, the church historian did this a little bit. He tried to validate that the CES letter has some historical facts and things like that. But when you feel betrayed by the church, like you already have the facts you need. I mean, people go into like a two month, in my case, it was like a five year deep dive into church history. And it's not like, I mean, you hear this with my year of polygamy podcast at the very beginning. I promise that if we have enough context, it's going to make this okay. And actually the more context we get, the worse it gets. And so I almost feel like what you need to do is not try to fix the facts. You hyper validate. I mean, we, it's, it's like you have to overcorrect with validation. And I wonder if he would have come in and he would have said, here are my problems. And they would have said, yeah, you know what? It sucks. It's really bad. I'm sorry. If that would have had a better approach rather than, yeah, yeah, that's true. But here are some ways that I look at it. Um, I just, I don't know that that is effective. That's yeah. Just, Emotional effective, validation. Effective in achieving what? Well, I'm assuming that the goal would be to either first, you know, take care of Trevor or um, keep him in the church. And, you know, I just wrote right. this about the book of Abraham, too. Um, he, Trevor's talking, saying that he looks for answers. He wants answers. But really, 
Trevor at this point already knows the answer. Mm -hmm. He already knows the book of Abraham. Um, I don't think context is going to convince him. I think if they would have said something like, you know what, it's a mess. All of us in this church are collectively trying to sort this out right now. It's a trial for our generation. We don't have a good answer. We're all coming to a reckoning with our faith. Maybe Trevor, maybe you can help us. You're the one in the seat right now. What would you suggest? Inviting him in because really I think that this is a conversation about identity. It's not a conversation about correcting the facts. I mean, once you read the CES letter, it's not like you can critique maybe his approach or his methodology or scholarship, but at the end of the day, you can go somewhere else and um, find good, accurate scholarship on these issues and that back up what, you know, Jeremy Reynolds is writing. And you're not going to fix those. There's not enough context or finagling or Terrell Givens approach that are going to straighten the facts how you needed them to be. It's, it's, that's not what I think Trevor was looking for. That's my opinion. John Hamer, let's bring you in. What were you going to say? Well, it's too late for what I was going to say. Now there's another whole thing on the topic. <laughs> so based on no, what Lindsay no, was going to say. No, let's have, I, you, have an opening statement. What, what was your reaction? What was the first thing you wanted to say after listening? Um, well, what I was going to say before was reacting to Glenn. Now I would be reacting to Lindsay. If I'm going to go back to what I was going to say, <laughs> is something, it would be something different. I mean, I guess um, I... Uh, I, I didn't know what we were going to be listening to when we when you said, "Hey, let's have you know, do you want to do some be on a podcast? It's going to be something real cool." I said, "Sure." <laughs> so anyway, so it was very interesting to listen through this, um, to be able to you know hear the recording, to hear how how people are trying to how people are trying to work through it. I thought that um, the church historian, or in other words, which is to say, the historian of the church. I thought he had approached this. He was in a very I think in quite an earnest way. I mean, I think he was um, most everything that he was sharing was, you know, academically defensible. I mean, there are a couple of places where he's sending him to Sorensen and and referencing the um, the missing papyrus theory, neither of which are clearly not what the church historian is hanging his testimony on or whatever. But you know, in other words, that's just in our arsenal. You can maybe go over there too. Those are not particularly defensible directions but in general everything that he was talking about was pretty pretty reasonable um but it was clear to me um that you know so so all the different things that Lindsay was suggesting that they do um you know and it wouldn't it have been wouldn't that have been working better and all that kind of thing i think that the, the problem here is that the person who was running the meeting and whose agenda it was who put it together uh the member of the 70 it was very clear he had no idea what the problem was, you know? And so because he himself doesn't understand the problem or the issues, he's just aware, well, we've got smart people on our side. <laughs> that's as much as, that's as well as he knows it. And so then his, his goal then at a certain point is to simply say, well, um, the person who's the head of the anti-Mormon church over here has an agenda and you either going to believe them or you're going to believe us, you know? And that's, I mean, that's pretty well as, as, as how he's framed it. And so he wasn't, he just wants to say, well, it's muddy everywhere and that's all you have to worry about, right? And then see whose side it is to be on. But so that's, I think, why they couldn't possibly have let it the other way. I think that if you were... The church historian was holding a meeting, you know, himself and he'd brought, he would have probably done it quite differently. Yeah. So, so, so here's what I'm hearing so far uh, from everyone. Glenn, you're, I don't know, is it fair to say, Glenn, you're questioning Trevor's motives that he, he wasn't up front or that he was disingenuous in some way? Is that, is that your opening concern? Yes, but I was trying to be really, really nice about it. 
Well, I'm sorry that that was my opening concern. That's what I led with. That you know, that 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 that's what I wanted to talk to him about before he jumped off. That, okay. That 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 was that that was the reason I. But said you got that. to and you got, did his first hour show you any sincerity, heartfelt desire to seek truth? To did you see the part where he cried about how? He, he didn't want this to happen and oh absolutely yeah 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 i mean i'm not i'm not doubting his sincerity as a person you know and and his experience of leaving the church over the last what did he say it was it's 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 pretty recent it's yeah, within six months couple years, years. Couple years yeah. um and, and so you know for me i've been out a lot longer and and you know, so it, it may be my own arrogance that's looking at this and going, oh, I recognize that stage, you know, where I'm like, okay, I, I, I've learned all this stuff. It's rocked my world. I want to have a conversation with people and, and test out these new ideas, but also I want them to know. And so I, I, I think they're, they're and I'm, I'm projecting myself onto Trevor at this point, which isn't fair to Trevor, but it's all I, you know, can do in that situation. If I was sitting there having this conversation um, with with the, the, the those two guys, I would have been wanting to drop everything that I know to kind of not really trip them up, but to get a response from them, especially if I'm recording it and I know, okay, this is going to be on record um, and, and, and regurgitating. And it's still part of, I think, him working through all of this himself. But, but I, do, I don't get the sense that there was really anything that they could have said to him that would reverse the course that he had started months earlier. Yeah. And, and the way that he was interpreting the information. I, I relate to him because I, I was able to meet with Elder Holland twice. Yeah. And uh, during those two meetings, honestly, I, it's true that I, I was skeptical that Elder Holland was going to resolve any of my concerns. And in fact, he didn't. Uh, at all. In fact, he raised more concerns. But I don't think it's fair to say that I wasn't open, or even that Trevor wasn't open. When I listen to Trevor, I hear him paying attention to what they say. I hear him processing it. And I did hear several points where he he was like, okay, that's a fair concern. I can see what you're saying. Um, but I wasn't, wasn't, weren't those always followed up with the, but, well, yeah, but, but that's because that's because is it also possible that they were not satisfactory answers? Absolutely. And that, that's, that's my point that, that I, I don't think that there was anything that they could have said to him that would have changed the way. And, that he and all I'm saying is you should, that's it's still possible. I'm just saying it's still possible to go to those meetings doubtful and skeptical that people are going to have an answer, but yeah. still hoping for it. And I believe that I was hoping for it when I went to Holland. I still stayed in the church years after Holland disappointed me, um, but I was hoping for it. And I think I, I would have been sincerely grateful if he had given something, which he didn't do. John Hamer. Right. I was just going to say, it's because we're maybe from this perspective aware that there's nothing that they could say, but you may be until you actually have had them until you get to the point where you are aware, you know, there's nothing that they could say that you do know, you might still hope that there's something they could say. And so actually I thought that the places where, um, the, the one of the core places where they were losing him in the interview, would it be always when they, that then would, would this faith component that you were talking about or that, um, that Glenn is talking about, you know, that this, um, not having that be able to be bridged and, and that's where it ends. So in other words, when they would admit 
with, with instead of saying, okay, no, it is this literal black and white, you know, God is communicating directly to the prophet kind of thing, kind of as you've always envisioned it as two people talking to each other. And they're saying, no, 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 it's not really like that. So where they would use these kind of jujitsu ways of, of stepping away from making those kind of stronger faith claims, then that would then divide them further. Cause then he said, cause, and, and that I think what he was always circling back to which was, okay, I could believe all these things, but there's nothing, but he, he was like describing it a little bit, when you take the truth component out of it, or whether when you take that, that core faith claim component out of it, then what's there? That's, yeah. I think. So. And, and that, that was, the, oh, Lindsay, Lindsay, please. Yeah. No, um, I think I agree with all of you. I, I get to Glenn's point. I agree with him in this, in the sense that not that I'm questioning Trevor's motives at all, but I think it, when you're in that situation, you really do. It's sincere that you, you think that you're hoping for an answer to this, but somewhere deep down in your heart, you already know the answer now that maybe the book of Abraham isn't a literal translation. Right. So anything at this point, anything that, um, that doesn't sound, that isn't validation sounds like an apology. And I think that that is where the leadership really needs to get real about this. The essays are a good step, I guess, but really what needs to happen is not a better explanation about the book of Abraham. That sounds like an apology. What needs to happen is validation, 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 inclusion. Uh, how do we accept people into our identity who still like who have found out these things? Those are the things that are not being addressed. And and in the church historians defense, he was brought in to clarify these facts. But I think that it could have gone a lot further if he would have said, "Yeah, you're right." I've had church historians say that to me, and it's so validating to be like, "Yeah, this is a mess. I don't yeah. know. I'm not sure. I have an answer to that yeah. because." That, to me, Trevor, that's what Trevor is really asking. He's hoping that the facts will back it up, but we all know that they won't. Well, uh, Lindsay, you're making a great point. Validation is always the way to go. That's like psychology 101 if you're going to be a therapist. You just listen empathetically and show unconditional positive regard. That will get you 70% of the way there in all of therapy. You don't even need an empirically supported form of therapy if you believe in what you're saying. You just show love and empathy and people are going to feel great about it. I'm just going to disagree with you guys on one small point. When you're at, when you're meeting with the wizard, we want to see the wizard, but nobody can see the great Oz. When you're at Oz, missing, meeting with the wizard, people that have unrestricted access to everything, if they were to come up with, actually, we have a new DNA study that we've conducted that shows this or that, or actually, if I could take you back to the vault, here's a piece of evidence that shows this or that. You, I think, I think it's still reasonable to say all right, I'm going to make sure with the people at the very top that there's nothing I haven't heard. And in that sense, they didn't, they didn't produce. And, and so it's a way to sort of say, okay, I've seen the wizard. I stood behind the curtain. I got to ask my questions and they got nothing. Well, I'm going to uh, jump in again and insert myself to push back on John's pushback because I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that a, a general authority is going to take the time that uh, people in a faith crisis have taken to study out all of the issues and to really try to understand them front and backwards just because there's people out there um, that are doing this and need their support with it. You know, it would be nice if they did that, and it would be nice if in the course of doing that they were able to find some kind of an answer that was actually satisfactory to people going through a faith crisis. 
but they're not going through a faith crisis. They accept this stuff. They believe this stuff. Why would they go in? For them, it's simple, and they don't understand why it's not simple for us. They don't understand why are you... uh, why, why are you filling your head with all of this stuff? It's just making things harder for you. I mean, you've heard those kinds of arguments, right? That's sincere. We need to accept that and not say, oh, you guys are doing a disservice because you're not doing this the way we want you to. I think that that's an unreasonable position for us to take. And I also think it's unreasonable to pull in this general authority who is one of how many general authorities do we have in the church? and say, okay, this represents what the church thinks, um, or this church historian, um, and say, okay, well, this this represents the church's answers on these things. It's just putting those people in an unfair position. Um, and for those of us who say what is really interesting to us or what's really important to us is the truth, I think we're ignoring the truth of their lived experience, and we're not accepting the truth of their reasons for believing in the church. We're rejecting that. We're saying those are stupid reasons. We don't reject that. And then how can we expect to have any kind of a common ground conversation with them? So that's my pushback on John's pushback. And I'm able to do that because I'm editing this episode for a second time, um, given all the circumstances. So there you go. Now, having said that, Lindsay, I think you're 100% right. That validation is the way to go. Um, let me, let me move to, before we move off of validation, because I, validation is great. Uh, is it real, is it realistic in a, in a situation where you've got a group of very staunch believers and somebody who's come to the conclusion that we're not, I'm not believing this, I'm not buying these arguments and he's seen them that, that you can really validate each other. So, I mean, what would that look like for, uh, and, and I'm forgetting their names. I'm sorry, I'm spacing it out. But but the general authority and historian for, for them to to validate Trevor, because um, because Gro did do that. You know, say, oh yeah, I get that. I've heard that. You know, that there was that. But they, he can't validate what Trevor really wants him to validate, which is your your conclusion in studying all these things indicates that there really is a problem, and there's 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 no solution to that problem except to leave the church. The, I disagree. They, they can. Well, they, I think they can validate up to a point to say, yes, this is a problem. And this is where you need to have faith to fill in the gap. And and if Trevor said, okay, yeah, I can have faith that fills in the gap, then because then Trevor would have to validate that faith is an acceptable stopgap, but he's not willing to, to validate them there. And so that's where I feel like that you can validate up to a point, but where it yeah, sure. really takes hold it, in a situation like this, it's not therapy, a situation like this I don't know where it is. So I'd, I'd, love, I'd love to be instructed here. With how can you get the validation at that level? Lindsay? I want to push back on, on one of your points, which is cool. you're saying that you can't validate, you can't agree with each other. This is what I disagree with is the part where you said, well, I come, he can't validate. The church historian. Cannot validate the idea of, well, you know, there is a problem in the history. So the only solution is to leave the church. That's the problem that that is our only acceptable choice is to leave the church. What I think would save pain, would save suicides, would save families breaking up is if we could say, yeah, there's a problem. Let's figure it out rather than, yep, I guess you have to leave now because you didn't figure out the facts. And now we're to a point in the church um, development with, with 
this information that most people leave and there is support and it's not as bad as it was even five years ago. So I'm not trying to say that um, leaving the church is like, you know, a choice that shouldn't have to be made because clearly it's a good choice for a lot of people. But what I'm saying is this is where we're getting stuck on the old narrative that the LDS church has given us for so long that if you don't fall in line, you're out. And that's kind of what we hear the general authority hearing too. And he, he can't even let his mind accept that there's a problem. So I agree there. They're not going to, I mean, they would have to start on the basis that there, there's a problem. Trevor is saying, Hey, there's a problem. And then the general authority, he's all like, he's like, well, there's probably not just talk to someone smarter. Right. That's, that's not a conversation, but the church historian knows this. He knows that there's a problem. And um, like you said, I think he handled it well, but I think to argue on the points of history is a mistake mm-hmm. because that is not where the solution yeah. lies to me. Right, right, right. All right, this is great. Um, let's jump into some of the content. The first point I wanted to talk about was he started out wanting to talk about epistemology and then kind of the one true church problem. And, and I guess my my main sense of that would be that that I think sometimes the rhetoric in the church has been, um, you know, or can be taken to be that uh, we are the only true church and we are the only one with truth. Right. Right. But I think that if we look um, throughout church history, I mean, there's very clear prophetic statements that truth is everywhere. Right. You know, right. truth. Yeah. Th- there is truth in, in, in Islam. There is truth in Buddhism. There is Confucius right. was a great spiritual teacher. Right. Um, y- y- you know, I think one way to even look at Joseph Smith or to think about him was that he, he, he was willing to sort of get truth from wherever he could find it. Yeah. Right. So, right. so for example, one one issue that that kind of trips people up sometimes is masonry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And and my take on that would be that Joseph saw some truth in masonry, takes it, incorporates mm-hmm. it in, in in into larger truth. Right. So he's looking for truth everywhere he goes, and and, and I think that we should be doing the same. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's truth in all the great world religions, and we shouldn't be right. scared of that. And and then certainly, I think what the church would say is unique is the, the, the sort of authority piece, mm-hmm. right? The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the priesthood piece on top of that. Right. One thing I noticed is I got the sense that the church historian was focusing on the sense that the church pulls truth and sees truth everywhere. But the, the church historian did not want to actually answer the question about the one true church. And I, I've listened to this twice now. Yeah, I've listened to it like five times. What I heard him say is, you know, if you want that issue of the one true church addressed, uh, talk to our general authority friend over here. But that's not going to be coming from me. It, did you guys hear that? And do you think it's safe to ask or wonder whether the church historian himself himself isn't necessarily wed to this idea of one true church? Did anybody catch that, or is that something no one well, really? He, uh, he he clearly. I mean, he actually in that in that whole thing, he actually volunteered. Um, Joseph Smith thinking there's truth in masonry, right? So yeah. he was actually, so that was, which is, that's a bold, you know, I don't know, example of finding truth everywhere since masonry doesn't have any ancient, ante, you know, antecedent or anything like that. It's something that is invented in late medieval, more likely early modern times. And so therefore it doesn't go back to Solomon and all that kind of thing. And you're kind of admitting that that's at the core of contemporary or if you if you actually take people down that path, you would say, well, that's where Joseph Smith got a lot of this temple stuff. 
Um, and so in other words, finding truth wherever it may be. But then he, the one place that he did, and he didn't address it then, is he says, okay, well, we always have thought, therefore, that there's truth everywhere. And then he says, but what's unique is the church's authority claim. And then he didn't follow that up, and actually nobody followed that up. Well, I, I heard him say, I, can't, I heard him say, I can't speak to that. You got to talk to the general authority. To speak to that. Yeah, the church's unique claim of authority. So in other words, they, that's where he's like, in other words, there's truth all over the place, but the, the unique thing is, is this authority claim, and that's yeah. really the whole thing that it's all yeah. coming down to. And I didn't, hear, I didn't hear the general authority address it. So at the 18-minute no, no, mark, he, it, it, he says, feel, feel free, free to, to weigh, weigh in, oh, general authority friend of ours, and the general authority friend of ours just did not. No answer. Right. Uh, Lin Lindsay or Glenn, do you make anything of that, or is it, was it not something that struck you? I mean, I think it's sincere. My my experience with all all LDS academics or academics that study Mormonism, I would say that they have very similar approaches to this. It's a more universalist, dualistic approach. I think that scientific, classically trained historians will, and John Hamer can maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that that's the the method being taught in academia. So I didn't hear that and be like, oh, that's some new radical shift in in church ideology i think that that's pretty consistent where scholars are, are you kind of saying that the historian was acting as a historian not as a church authority so he wouldn't speak about the one true church is yeah, that i mean saying? he led with that he said this is my role i'm okay. the historian yeah. which right. i think is another academic um responsibility that he has and th the problem with all of us and we come by it honestly so this is not to blame the victim but if you have a church name badge on, if you work for the church, we expect that validation. And that's why I'm saying it's probably wrongheaded for the system to expect th that the church historian somehow magically solve this guy's problems. Um, what they really need from anyone who wears a church badge is validation. Yeah. Glenn, well, you and, have a quick comment? Yeah. Well, I don't know how quick it's going to be, but I'll try. Um, I, I, I think that it's fair to... Uh, in, infer from what we listen to that the church historian he's aware of this as a problem for ex-mormons the 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 one true church claim and what he was trying to do was say it doesn't have to be black or white that one church is true and all the rest of them are false but it could be that there's truth in all of them you know so it's a way of softening that problem and so in that sense i think he was validating he was showing an awareness of the concern he was validating a little bit and he was offering even though he's saying, I'm a historian, this isn't really my specialty where I can help you, I'll tell you how I've reconciled this. I, I think that was where his answer was. And that it's, it's not that it, it's all or nothing, it's that we just have 100% and everybody else has, you know, 70, you know, or something like that. But, you know, 70 is yeah. not bad. It, it, you know, so, so don't, don't think that it's such a harsh claim that we're a one true church. Maybe that would help you. Um, stay you know or something like that so i i thought that's what his response sure. was sure sure okay um that that makes sense uh and, and i just do wonder you know some of the comments on the facebook uh live stream were basically saying that basically saying that this church historian guy is a, a new, new order, order mormon. mormon um that, that he's certainly more like you know i would have been seven years ago which is like Oh, the church isn't true with a capital T, but there's truth in it. And right. we have our own divine mission, but other churches are true too. And we're all, you know, there's many paths of Mount, many paths of Mount Fuji. Do you, any of you guys think that it's off limits to, to speculate reasonably that this church historian might be sort of more new order Mormonist than Orthodox? Anybody have a thought? 
he's going to be, he's, when he, the answers that he gave, I mean, we'll get to it in the book of Abraham, right? Now let's go to that. Let's go to that. So you and, read the book of Abraham essay. Yeah, okay. I did. And it didn't quite, yeah. like, like, like there was some justification there is how right. I saw it, but it didn't quite like answer it 100% yeah. for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but, but talk to me no, a little bit about that. Let me just kind of give you my perspective on, yeah. on Abraham, right? So we know that the problem is that um, on a surviving scrap of papyri, and right. of course we have to remember we've only got 10 or 11 of these scraps of papyri. Everything else is gone, right? right? Destroyed right. in the Great Chicago Fire and all this kind of thing. Right. On one of the surviving scraps of papyri as part of facsimile one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And we know then that what we know as facsimile one, Egyptologists would say, you know, is a is a funerary text. Right. Right. And and we know as well that uh, the scrap that we have mm-hmm. of papyrus doesn't mm-hmm. date to Abraham's time. That's right. Right. It dates to the first century first BC century. or first century right. AD around there. Right. Um, so 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 that's the core problem, right? Yes. And. And I think there's sort of there's two basic ways to think about it, right? One is that um, maybe Joseph had other things, you know. So we know he had these scrolls of papyri. Maybe, the, and and we know the other scraps of papyri don't seem to have anything to do with Abraham, right? right? right. So 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 one response. So maybe is, there was maybe, maybe yeah, and stuff. that's and that's what I read is that you know we're seeing what we have, right? But it's so minimal in, right. in what Joseph may have Compared had. to what he had. We know, we, we know there's good descriptions that he has rolls of papyrus, and right. we know we just have some scraps. I, uh, for me, the more persuasive way to think about Abraham, and, and I think this um, goes along with sort of Joseph's career as a translator, mm-hmm. if we can use that kind of terminology. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so we know he... Um, he has two impulses when he encounters an ancient text. Um, one impulse is more what we would term a scholarly impulse, or more of a kind of a traditional translation impulse, and one is more of a translation, a spiritual impulse. So when he gets the Book of Mormon, mm-hmm. uh, one of his impulses is to take some of the characters to a scholar. Mm-hmm. And say, mm-hmm. do these match up? Right. That's that's the kind of the Charles Anthony story. Right. And of course, we know the the other is this kind of spiritual impulse mm-hmm. uh, when he wants to translate the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, produce what we call the inspired version of the Bible. Right. So he's right. reading through. Uh, we know that he's consulting scholarly works as he does that. Right. He's got right. biblical commentaries. Of course, and he grew up right. Yeah, I mean, he grew up in a very Protestant heavy, I mean, people doing the tours and I mean, he right. he knew the Bible a lot more than we give him credit. Right. And 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 so then his other impulse is he claims that you know, he says that some of the Bible revisions just mm-hmm. coming through straight revelation. Right. right? So so for example, the book of Moses, mm-hmm. which is kind of the 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 twin book in the Pearl of Great Price exactly. of Abraham. How does the book of Moses come? Joseph just says it yeah. comes. Yeah, it's right? just revelation. So, so, yeah. so he's working on uh, the Old Testament right. with the Bible revision, and then it yeah. comes as revelation. Right. Right. So there's kind of the scholarly impulse. You know, he's, he's trying to study some things out, and then he says it comes uh, through revelation. So fast forward a few years, and and of course Joseph is fascinated by ancient languages. Mm-hmm. 
right? I mean, he talks about, you know, can we recover the Adamic language, right? I right. mean, there's, there's this right. real interest in language. He studies Hebrew, right? You know mm-hmm. all this. He studies Hebrew, yeah. he studies Greek, yeah. you know, all this oh, yeah. uh, sort of thing. What does he do when he gets the, the papyrus? They try to figure it out. Yeah, he treats it more of a scholarly kind of... Yeah, initially that seems to be very much what they're doing. So, so we have a set of records that we call the Kirtland Egyptian Papers. Right. They're mostly in the hands of Joseph's <laughs> scribes, mm-hmm. but Joseph has some writing on those pages as well. Mm-hmm. And it seems like what they're doing is they're copying characters from the papyrus, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how they might relate to e- each other. Mm-hmm. And of course at this point, no one can read Egyptian. Right. right, the the Rosetta Stone is like <laughs> right. ten years earlier. Exactly. No one knows about it, right? So they're trying <laughs> exactly. to they're trying to kind of puzzle this out. Yeah, um, and then the Book of Abraham comes, mm-hmm. and my so another way to think about it is that the papyrus is the catalyst for the revelation, and the revelation. The, the text of Abraham may be on the papyrus, or it may not be, mm, right? But, I could see how... But the papyrus sort of catalyzes yeah. a book of Moses' <laughs> experience. Uh, it kind of sparks, Joseph. yeah, right. sparks the, uh, yeah, the, the topic, and then he consults and gets spiritual revelation and right. creates a work around it. And, and one problem that we have with almost uh, understanding almost all these issues is that we wish we had more records right on them right so so joseph never tells us how he gets the book of abraham right he never tells us how he translates even his scribes tells very little right about the book of abraham wilford Mm -hmm. woodruff tells a few years later that maybe he uses your methamim or his tear stone on it you know others one of the scribes says he just dictated by sort of the power of god right right? and so so um I think those are the the, the, the two basic okay. ways that people would think about. One is that well, maybe it's just not there because we don't have. Right. And 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 the yeah. second is this could be just a funerary text, or it could be a funerary text that um, you know it's 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 two millennia later from Abraham, but but that doesn't mean that it couldn't contain writings of Abraham. Right, right? it gets passed down over time or something like that. Right, but maybe the funerary text. Uh, is the catalyst by which Joseph right. receives and that's and that's and that's basically what the what the papers say, you know. Right. Um, and and I, I can see that perspective. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. You know what I mean? Um, it's just it's just unfortunate that everything that we have, yeah, as a testable, you know, right item. To to test his translation right. abilities is is proven a fraud, and so that's. It's well. I'd say it's, I'd say it's untestable. Well, which is a different sort of which is a different well, sort of question than that is right. a fraud. And by the way, calling this thing a fraud to someone who you know is a believer isn't a way to like really engage on the same level, <laughs> you know? Because he's not going to agree that it's a fraud anyway. Let's talk I mean, about the, the very two theories, next thing, right? Joseph and scholar versus Joseph, spiritual impulse versus scholarly impulse. Talk about that, John. Right. And so, I mean, he, I thought that was one of the um, answers that he kind of spent the most time trying to explain. And so he was presenting the Elias apologist, apologetic um, arsenal. And so he essentially says, well, there's, we, we should, we not going to totally throw out here the, the missing papyrus theory that some people would like to have, which I think is pretty irrelevant and doesn't, you know, isn't going to go anywhere. And, but then he actually didn't, 
that he didn't say that that was where he was at. So like you say, he said that what we always see with Joseph Smith, who is an intellectually curious guy who wasn't like Brigham Young, who just thought all book learning was bad. He was actually a guy who, wherever he had the opportunity to, he wanted, you know, they made the school of the prophets of the apostles. He wanted to, they hired a rabbi or a, or a Hebrew teacher anyway, to be able to teach, teach them Hebrew. He wanted to learn that stuff. And they were trying to, in the, in the Joseph Smith's Egyptian um, grammar and um, that they were trying to put that, uh, you know, try to figure out Egyptian in that kind of a sense. Although even then it is no clear cut though. It shouldn't be thought of as being like completely separated. Like there's the scholar Joseph Smith and the, and the prophet Joseph Smith. It's all intertwined in him, I should think. But anyway, that it, it comes up with the, it, the proposal though. He's saying, well, look, why don't we just, what if we see though the book of Abraham as uh, the, the papyrus is merely being catalytic. So in other words, that this is another kind of, you know, direct uh, revelation where Joseph Smith is the source here of the text entirely, and it's not actually any kind of translation in an academic sense. And so that's a new, you know, quite a nuanced view that isn't probably going to be printed in a CES, man CES manual anytime soon, right? And so if you're saying, does that make you a more um, nuanced sophisticated LDS position that that's where he's at. It looks like. Do you, do you, it seems to be a lot of the comments on Facebook were that Joseph did claim to be translating, really translating. And this is something that really struck me last week or the week before Bushman, Givens, Jenna Reese, you know, Mark Brown, Rosalind Welch, uh, Patrick Mason, they all descend on Utah state university and they spend a whole day um, uh, Phil Barlow was there. They spent a whole day redefining the term translation, trying to say translation doesn't mean translation. And Joseph didn't even necessarily mean translation when he said translation. Translation can be all sorts of other things that then allows the scriptures to still be valid, even if they're not historical. And my question is, is there evidence that Joseph meant translation when he said translation? And are they being a little bit uh, muddying the waters a little bit? I, it's probably said a lot of things that Joseph Smith says are said with deliberate nuance. In other words, he says things that he there there are multiple answers to, and he may well say he's legally say, meaning the one, and, and but he's also then consciously trying to get people to hear the other. So that certainly happens when he uses a, uses phrasing that's nuanced. But I would say in this case with the word translation. Um, I think that w there's a lot of evidence to see that Joseph Smith is maybe thinking of something quite different in terms of translation than what we think of today or what even what the LDS church recently has ever um, kind of presented this kind of thing as because this word that they use at the time, um, you know, we, they use it in, biblically to say like the city of Enoch is translated from earth up to heaven, that Moses's body is translated and it becomes an eternal body. In other words, they use that word translated. If you read the early patriarchal blessings that Joseph Smith Sr. gave to early members, he says, thou shalt have the power to translate thyself from planet to planet. And so what he means by, by translate in that case is not that you're going to turn your body into a digital, whatever, you know, some kind of other language, it means that you're going to transport it, teleport it from space to space. And so it is completely, I think, defensible to say that the idea here is you are taking something from the spiritual realm and bringing it to the physical realm. And that may well be, in other words, as opposed to an academic translation. So I would agree with them on that conference and to that extent. <laughs> so. So, so to say that Joseph Smith ever gave the impression that he was looking at a character in a foreign language Try, figuring out what it literally meant and then translating that into English. 
Joseph, they're, all, they're also doing that. Did Joseph <laughs> give the impression that he was doing that with the Book of Mormon or with the, with the papyra, with the plates or the papyra? Yeah, yeah, he's doing that with both because he also gives out characters, which he says are these, you know, these characters that he says are on the Book of Mormon plates. And so the idea is that those are actual and actual character language. And then with the Egyptian, like they, like uh, Matt Groh was mentioning, they, they, they produce this entire Egyptian language and grammar where they create what they think of as a system for Egyptian and how it would work. And they take a, 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 um, a character from the hieroglyphic, from the papyrus that they have, and then they try to create a system for it. But their understanding of hieroglyphics is completely wrong. It's, it's this... Uh, this idea that everybody had in the 17th, 18th, 19th century that uh, Egyptian language is entirely magical. And so each one of these little glyphs can be a whole paragraph. And that is actually, and their, their basis for that then, those same things that are happening in those glyphs, a lot of those same phrases enter into the Book of Abraham text as we have it. So it is not a completely separate thing like they like to do. It's intertwined. Glenn, what do you, what do you think about this? Well, I, I don't even think that I don't mean any insult to John Hamer, but I don't think you need uh, a historian as uh, well-studied and, and smart as John Hamer is to answer the question that you're asking. You just need to look at the facsimiles that are in the book of Abraham because they're annotated. And Joseph Smith said in here, this place right here at number one says this. And, and, and the things that used to capture my imagination when I was a kid pouring over this in, in sacrament meeting were the ones that would say, contains writings that cannot be revealed unto the world, but is to be had in the holy temple of God. And then figure nine, oh, ought not to be revealed to the world at the present time. Figure 10 also, figure 11 also. If the world can find out these numbers, so let it be, amen. You know, I mean, just look at what's in the scriptures that are being published and circulated among Mormons today. And you can see that Joseph Smith was very literally assigning meaning to these characters and, and intentionally withholding and saying, oh, you're going to get more of this uh, later. Um, so I, I, to, to me, it's not really even a valid argument uh, or a response to, to take the catalyst theory and to say that he wasn't working from that. But it doesn't, uh, again, listen, in, in, I'm going back to the question of validation. How do you show validation in, in a conversation like this, when when the church historian clearly saying, well, yeah, there's things like this, but um, you've got to take it on faith and you've got to look at all the other scriptures that he did and what was Joseph Smith and put it into all this context. And he's taking this very apologetic approach to it, but it's so that he can validate or justify his faith. That's what that's why I believe this. And and they're never going to get to a point where he goes, oh, yeah, you, you're right. Um, boy, the facsimiles in, in the book of Abraham are just wrong. Let me restate my hyperbole right there. Um, it's not that they'll never get to that point. Maybe, maybe they will. Who knows? But I think it's unreasonable for one of us to expect in a conversation that in the course of that conversation, they're going to come to that conclusion. Because if you base your beliefs on evidence and you're ignoring the evidence that they are believing members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints then you're not really pursuing truth and you're not really reading the evidence that's there, right? Because for him to say, yeah, you know, you've got a really good point here. There are legitimate reasons to doubt the book of Abraham. Like maybe they could say that, but then it calls their own faith into question. And I, I just think we, we all protect ourselves against that. We're blinded to our own 
uh, flaws in those areas. Everybody is. I'm not just throwing this one guy on the bus. We're all like that. So I think we should be a little more tolerant of that in others. Yeah, I'm pretty, and Lindsay, I want to bring you in here, but I'm pretty certain that that Joseph Smith told people that these papyri were written by the hand of Abraham, if, if I'm not mistaken, that he believed that, that he told people that. Um, and sometimes I just think Occam's razor applies. My yeah. nephew once said that nobody is postmodern about a, 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 a label on the, on the rat poison. You, you look at the words and you see what it is and you don't mess with it. And I think sometimes Occam's razor applies. And in the case of uh, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Abraham, the use of the word translation, he meant to give people the impression that he was translating ancient records into English. And that's the end of story. And trying to expand the word translate to make it fungible, I think is just grasping for straws in a narrative that, you know, and I like to say this, that if I went to Patrick Mason or Phil Barlow or Richard Bushman and said, I've received ancient records from somewhere and now I've translated them and look at what they mean. If there was a source translation for the original language, they would look at that. They would say that I was making it up and they would say that I was a fraud. They wouldn't, you know, add, uh, you know, give me credit for being able to channel some spiritual sort of knowledge they would just say john delin is fooling people he's a fraud ignore him but they're willing to do that for joseph smith for whatever reason they are okay so soapbox time right now for editor's privilege glenn right um so what did john just say but they're willing to do that for joseph smith for whatever reason they are for whatever reason what for whatever reason they are you know to, to me these reasons that this is really what we should be talking about this is what i'm really interested in because we say things like this as if to say you know for some weird reason that makes absolutely no sense at all mormons keep believing all this stupid stuff because well they're not really interested in the truth but we we are the truth is important to us really we're so interested in the truth so so what about the truth that they really do have actual reasons for believing what they believe. They have important reasons. They have valid reasons. They have reasons that are much larger than any single factual discrepancy or even dozens and dozens of impossibilities. They've got real reasons, and it makes a real difference in their life. And I, I can't figure out what those reasons are and accept those reasons for them, even though I don't accept those reasons to base my own belief on, and if I can't take the time to look through them and understand them, that's my problem. That's my inability to look at the world through somebody else's eyes and to accept things that are foreign to me or even sometimes downright repulsive to me. That's my problem. It's my limitation. It's not theirs. Now, I have personally been way too quick to be dismissive of those reasons and to ridicule and to mock those believers and you know, that's a major flaw in my character. And I'm super sensitive to this right now in this post-Trump world as I'm looking around and trying to figure out what the heck happened. That type of in-group, self-righteous arrogance and dismissiveness towards others, now it's, it's natural. It's part of the reasons why we have groups. It's built into having groups that we would do that. But it's one of the major reasons that so many people are divided in our country right now, and it's really, really impacted me. So anyway, I, had, I just had to get up on that soapbox, and now I'll send you back to the conversation. But they're willing to do that for Joseph Smith for whatever reason they are. Okay, Lindsay, what do you, what do you want to add? Okay, I'm going to get all Mormon feminists for a minute, okay? 
because when Mormon when Mormon feminists talk about issues in the church, very rarely in feminist spaces are we talking about the book of Abraham. So like when I'm hearing you guys talk about it, I'm thinking like this is such a Mormon man conversation. And that's not derogatory. <laughs> it's not derogatory. So, and certainly the book of Abraham is an issue for a lot of women. That's not what I mean. But I'm just thinking like the way that you guys were taught and viewed to view the church was one way, right? And the way that women are taught to view the church is another way. So women are taught in the church that we don't have authority. We don't have a power, the power. So we're always doing like these little shifts and moves to have it make sense. So I feel like women are almost more equipped to have more nuance in these things. And that's why the literalistic translation of book of Abraham, I think doesn't matter to a lot of women because for us, it's a, it's a different approach. So I'm going to bring that into it. And I, again, I'm speaking generally and more about my experience too. So I'm not trying to project my stuff, but, um, we're, we're like arguing fact for fact. We're expecting, uh, Glenn, when you're talking about validation, I think what you're saying is you're expecting Trevor to go in and be validated on the facts. That's not what I'm saying at all, because I think that's impossible. Let's throw the facts out. Let's say the book of Abraham is garbage, that Joseph Smith made it up, whatever we want to say about that. There's this feminist thinker, Audre Lorde, who says uh, this quote that you'll never, for the master's tools, will never dismantle the master's house. They may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. And that's what I feel like this whole conversation is contingent upon. We're trying to use the master's tools to dis dismantle the master's house. We're trying to say, well, look, they're being literal about the book of Abraham and, and it doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. Like Glenn pointed out, the facsimiles are being taught literally. The problem in the church for me is that we teach people to think about this literally. And now you know, we're reaping what we sowed with that. And so we're trying to have this conversation where we're beating fact for fact and it's not match. It's not going to match up. It's not because Joseph Smith, the way he saw the world, the way that he did things were shady. A lot of times they were shady. And I think community of Christ has figured this out to say, well, why don't we, you know, Joseph Smith, instead of making him this one dimensional character, let's show that Joseph was you know, a revelator and a prophet and a seer, but he was also a fraud. And he was also uh, sometimes, you know, had sexual impulses and sometimes he was a criminal and, and making people more dimensional, I think is the way to go. But even in this conversation, we're trying to like, you know, beat them at their own game. And that game's done. That game was over a long time ago. Well, Lindsay, I love the I love that you're bringing in a feminist perspective. I love that you're saying there are lots of other things that are important than truth claims. That's absolutely true. I would just say that I think the truth claims do matter. I think this is all built on truth claims uh, foundationally. That's what I think, uh, and so I think both matter. I think I think the facts and the evidence do matter. I do think it tends to be a male conversation more than a female conversation. And I think what you're saying is true, which is there are 50 billion other things and sometimes way more important things that matter other no, than the truth claims. I, I don't think I'm articulating this right. It's not, what I'm saying is it is built on the truth claims. But if you're expecting Trevor to go and get those truth claims validated, they're not. You're saying it doesn't add up. It won't add up. You're not yeah. going to find, because like, like you said, well, what if they have discovered magical DNA? Well, that would solve our DNA problem. That would solve one problem out of many, many problems. And that's what I'm saying. This approach, this whole conversation, like to me that the conversation was done once the record started coming out. So this is a problem that is not going to be solved. That's what I'm saying. So if we're looking for solutions, then there has to be a different approach. But 
you're not. I, I just think it's reasonable to expect that if they're claiming steel swords and millions of bones and all these civilizations, it's, it's reasonable to expect that there'd be evidence. And none of us are debating whether the Roman civilization existed because we have all the evidence. And so I think it's reasonable to, to try and find them. I think given the claims, the evidence should be there. So if, if, if you have a very strong belief in God and, and you're a, a Mormon, is it also reasonable to think that maybe that evidence that you're looking for, for, for Book of Mormon geography does exist, but it's just hasn't been discovered yes. yet. Yes. And, um, yes. you know, so, so let's, let's keep an open mind and yes. put that one on the shelf. You yeah. know, I, I, I think when, when you're saying that facts matter, I, I get in trouble a lot on, on Infants on Thrones when I'm saying, no, they really don't matter. And, and people, what do you mean they matter? Well, they don't matter equally to everybody. You know, yeah, I mean, that's like right. there, no, there, that's are, right. there are people that care about it more than, than others. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear more, and, and maybe we need to do this in a separate uh, discussion, Lindsay, but talking about what validation is then. Like, like <laughs> because I think you're right. The type of validation... This entire thing is not a conversation about facts. That is, yeah. that is a conversation we have because that's the script the church gave us is to talk about the truth claims. The whole conversation, when I heard that with Trevor, is it's an identity conversation. It's Trevor saying, "How help me with this. You're my people. I've looked to you my whole life. I'm in pain. How are you going to make sense of this? My family's denied it. I'm here to get validation. Meeting with you gives me credibility to my family. This is the story I hear over and over and over with people that facts become the language that we use. But what we're really saying is, what about me? What about me? What about you? Where, where does this leave me? Well. And so that is what I'm trying to say. It, I'm not giving it advice to people going in or to even Trevor. This is, I'm speaking to the Matthew Groves of the church. Like, if you want to have an effective conversation, yeah. it's not going to be with the facts. That's what I'm trying that's to say. That's true. Lizzie, that's 100% true. I love it. You're bringing a beautiful perspective. And I, I agree. No, it's not going to end well. Um, the best thing to do is to validate and show love and empathy to kind of follow Christ's example, ironically, um, just unconditional love and support and empathy, try and get into people's mind and heart and see where they're coming from and tell them that it makes sense that they feel the way that they feel that they're not alone, that they're not crazy. Wait, are, okay. Cutting it again. Are, are we saying that we expect Mormons to do that for us? Or are we saying that we're willing to do that for them? You know, question time. And you're right, Lindsay, that is 100% what they should do. Um, and I'm going to say that, that facts matter. Um, you know, John, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that facts matter because it makes me reconsider my position and, and facts actually do matter. And, you know, the fact is that we recorded this, we talked about this, um, and now I'm spending all this time going through and redacting the names of the general authority and the church historian and... I'm not going to do it anymore. So for those of you who have made it this far in the recording, way to go, you're initiated. Now you can find out who these people really are because I'm not going to cover it up anymore because um, it's done. It's a fact. Facts matter. And what I mean by that is, of course, facts matter, but they're not the only consideration. There's a lot more that goes into people making decisions than just the facts, you know, weighing um, all these other things. So anyway... Um, I am just going to stop redoing this episode at this point and leave it how it was um, and um, 
keep it up and you guys can listen to it and comment on it. And I expect that at some point, probably in the next couple of days, uh, John and John and Lindsay and I and maybe Trevor as well will all get together again and reflect on what this experience was for us and uh, where we go from here. But until then, I'll lead the, uh, you know, like how meta has this gotten? You know, like my commentary upon commentary upon the commentary that I was first asked to comment on. So um, whatever. It's a hobby and I've been spending a lot of time on this particular one and now... I'm done, and that's a fact, and I can say that because facts do matter. And one final fact before I really do end this version of the edit and let you go on with the rest of the episode. You know, at at the end here, you're going to hear uh, a very long, like, hour and 20-minute Easter egg that is the recording that Trevor did with the historian and the general authority. And the reason, the main reason why I am not pulling this down the way that John's pulling it down from Mormon stories is I don't think that there's anything in this conversation that is damning to either of these guys, either the church historian or the general authority. I, not, nothing surprised me in what they said. I, you know, I, I think it's informative. I think it can give people that vicarious experience of having that conversation with them. But what I really hope happens is that as you listen to it, you'll you'll recognize how normal and like reasonable it is for them from the position that they're in to say the things that they're saying and that really what we have is a, a disagreement about the role of faith in making conclusions on aspects like these and i don't think that that disagreement is going to be resolved especially in conversations like this so as you're listening to uh, the church historian and the general authority. I hope that you'll be kind in your reaction to the things that they say as they're sincerely trying to help Trevor with his stated concerns. Really quickly, uh, you know, we don't want to belabor this, but do we want to talk at all about the the Book of Mormon conversation? Um, you know, he mentions via the Hebrews and the late war. Um, There was this interesting quote from Brigham Young that he pulls out, which is, I I wouldn't be stumbled if the prophet translated 40 times and it was different each time. God speaks in the language of translations. Then he talks about Givens saying that God leaves things muddied so that there's a role for faith. Um, And then, of course, Trevor responds by saying it's the church that muddies the concept of faith. Again, he's saying that logic and science and DNA and everything matters. It should matter. Are, are, are we now kind of beyond the point of, of even talking about that? Is that kind of the same conversation? Lindsay would probably say yes. <laughs> no, I mean, clearly, I, I listen, I think people might feel invalidated what I said. Facts matter to people like you guys just brought up. Because if that is how you hinge your testimony, then that makes sense. Mine was a heritage-based testimony. Mine was based on the pioneer stories and the feelings. So I come from a different perspective. Sure. No, no, no. It's, so, a little, it's an important one. And there's many people like you. Gina talks about this all the time. Gina Colvin, the people of New Zealand, she gives us the impression they never took the Book of Mormon seriously in terms of a historical document. Isn't that kind of what Gina says too? Yeah. And, but I mean, the, so people that have been hurt by the church, their adverse reaction is like, so stop, stop trying to, you know, apologize for the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just sure, saying the sure. whole, when we engage in this kind of fact for fact debate, I feel like that's the script the church gave us because they're saying it's all true or it's all false. And I'm saying, I don't care if it's true or if it's false. 
um, here's how it functions and here's what it serves in my life. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. I don't care if it's true or if it's false. Here's how it functions and here's what it serves in my life. Here's how it functions and here's what it serves in my life. But I want to talk about polygamy. So we're I'm getting just, there. We're almost there. We'll talk about polygamy. Okay, Glenn or John, anything about Book of Mormon, Book of Mormon that you guys want to talk about, including his reference to Sorensen? John Hammer, you mentioned that earlier. Are you not a fan of Sorensen? No. <laughs> huh? Yeah. So no, no, I'm not. Why not? What's wrong with Sorensen? It's he's it's, got a PhD and you don't. Yeah. Oh. That's correct. <laughs> it's it's really. I mean, Sorensen stuff is just really, really, really really horrible and bad and i mean it's just not none of it's academically defensible it's the kind of thing that um whatever michael co called the lunatic fringe of mayan you know anyway distort distortion so it's it that's just a bunch of um you know misreading of the text you know misreading of all the archaeological stuff and all of these kind of things like like anyway it, so so no i don't think that would have been very helpful for as a as a place to send anybody down i also think that um, you know, like this whole, that whole part of it though was kind of muddy because at a certain point, Trevor, you know, got accused of throwing the kitchen sink at everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think that once you do start coming down the whole thing, when you just, and, and I was, I wanted to ask him, he really has read the entire thing of view of the Hebrews. That is a boring book. So he, <laughs> so, I don't know. But anyway, so I, yeah. mean, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to defend. Uh, uh, the one thing about it, I mean, that I think people haven't actually, um, haven't actually, uh, gotten in gotten a, their hooks into very well is that the book of mormon because of its literary dependence on the king james bible shows conclusively that it's a modern text and so and so that's something that we don't ha take as one of these smoking gun things people like glenn was talking about the facsimiles um i mean macro actually said in there and admitted on the facsimiles he says no no one um no one disputes facsimile not number one is not a direct translation Egyptologically, which is a pretty big concession, right? Yeah. So he actually threw that one uh, under the bus or whatever. And I think that the other one is that they have to eventually come to terms with is literary dependence, which is to say we have a manuscript transition to the tra transmission of the Bible through all the monks and everything like that. So we can tell which Bible manuscript comes from which exact Bible. And there's all the different variations and everything like that. The Book of Mormon not only quotes the Bible extensively, it also paraphrases it and, and reuses it. So the sermons are often paraphrasing Paul and things like that. Those paraphrases are literally dependent on the King James Bible. That's just completely you know, anyway, so in other words, it means that it's a modern text conclusively. So there's, so that's an important one. <laughs> so much more important than view of the Hebrews or the late war or anything like that. So Glenn. And, but I, well, and I, I would, I would wager to predict that if John Hamer had been right there next to Trevor and had said this to Grow and to Clark, it wouldn't have made a single dent in the way that, that Grow or Clark feel about, you know, Joseph no, Smith think, or the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah, you, no, you know, no, yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it would, because they're already committed in to their, to their faith in this. I, I think the, the one thing that came out in that section that I really liked that, that Matthew Grow said, um, you know, Trevor brought up the view of the Hebrews. He brought up uh, the, the, the other one. And um, he said, oh, yeah, have you read them? Did you go read them? Go read it. I, great advice. Everybody should do that. Yeah. Like any, any, any of these things that come up in the CES letter that come up on podcasts or that you read online, go test it out for yourself and see how it, it feels. And then don't just stop there, but, but do a textual analysis of the book of Mormon. Like John was just talking about, do a textual analysis of the book of Abraham. Do the things that are actually written in here, do they, do they feel like, do they seem like something from 2000 years ago? 
does it seem like something from 200 years ago? It, you know, I, I think there are answers to those kinds of questions, but you've got to be open to receiving uh, an answer that the evidence is going to lead you to. And I think when you've got, when you're so committed faithfully that this tr church is true, no matter what, you're at a disadvantage there. So it, it, so the facts don't matter in that case. What? Yeah. Yeah. What about the point so facts where, don't matter. right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's lots of comments from people on Facebook echoing that they love Lindsay. They love her perspective. And there's several people saying the facts matter. So I think both are true. I think Donald Trump, man, Donald Trump is president of the United States. Facts do not matter. That's, did I ever say that? No, it don't no, matter. no, you did not. You did not. <laughs> Here's the problem. Again, I'm going to say this again, and I hope I can articulate it. The hierarchical narrative, the narrative given to us by the Joseph's church, narrative, Joseph's Joseph, narrative, Joseph's narrative, Gordon Hinckley's uh, narrative, Joseph's is, narrative. No, look, it's not only Joseph's matter. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say he keeps on saying equating the current LDS narrative with Joseph's narrative as if the LDS church isn't massively distorting the early history. What the way Joseph Smith? I'm not. I'm not going to defend Joseph Smith. There's all these things are also. I mean, if you want to use the facsimiles, he's got a smoking gun there of a of a direct mistranslation that shows he doesn't know a thing about translation. But his narrative is very different totally. from contemporary LDS totally. narrative. Totally. So if we're talking about right now for Lindsay, the what's happening in a person's social context is how are the how is the current hierarchy doing this including distorting joseph's narrative so it's not just so so, so don't of course keep of course so this, is, this is what i'm trying to say if we hinge everything on facts well then we get to open ourselves up for a hundred different scholars interpretation well here's what joseph actually meant and and if you look at this source then it says this and this and this and i'm saying that conversation doesn't matter to me because right. that conversation yeah useful. And that to me strengthens the hierarchical narrative. Facts matter. Of course they do. When I look, you know, I did a year of polygamy podcast. I know a little bit about sorting through this stuff. Um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you rely on that argument to untangle this mess, yeah. you're just strengthening that you're giving the church ammunition in this conversation. That's Love it. Love it. That's brilliant. Thank you, Lindsay. Brilliant. Uh, I totally agree. Um, I, and we don't mean to uh, make it sound like we're saying you don't think facts matter. We know you think that. I hate and, truth yeah. and I hate facts. <laughs> really quickly, was it disingenuous for Grow to point uh, Trevor to Sorensen? Because they're all the way through it, even even Clark's argument was there's some. It, this is kind of the nibbly technique. It's like oh, there's someone really smart that's thought through all this and they still believe, and so that's all you need to know. You don't really need to worry about it. Just trust the smart guy uh, and you're good. It was a disingenuous for Gro to point him to Sorensen when we all know Sorensen is not legitimate uh, as an archaeologist as he, when he talks about the Book of Mormon. Uh, you know, I'm no expert on sort of right. Mormon archaeology or things like that. Um, you know, yeah, the DNA analysis, anachronisms, yeah. archaeological. I mean, what, uh, why have would you read there... the church's essay on DNA? I have. And, yeah. and, that's it's kind of like the book the book of Abraham where it's like okay I could see it, yeah. it wasn't convincing to me mm -hmm. but if I but if I were like uh, I'll just follow the spirit on this one kind of thing you yeah. know then I could maybe look past it but um, but the fact that like there's zero I mean Jerusalem exists right. you know what I mean um, we have you know the Roman Empire we have so many like you know just so much data 
pointing yeah. to the fact that those people actually at least lived. Right. And I think that faith comes in at that point where it's like, okay, you know, Jesus Christ may have been an actual person, uh-huh. but I need to have faith to believe that he did all of the miracles right. that he did. That to me would be faith. Yeah. Um, if there was no Jerusalem and there's no evidence pointing to that the people actually even existed, yeah. you know, and it was a made up fictional story, I don't think you'd have nearly as many Christians in the world because it'd be a made up story, you know, and that, that's how I look at the Book of Mormon is that if after, you know, 150, I mean, gosh, going on 200 years, yeah. we don't have any archaeological evidence directly supporting the Book of Mormon. That to me is a big deal because we're not talking a few hundred thousand people. We're talking millions of people that like, I mean, there was a war supposedly by Hill Cumorah that numbered in like a couple million, yeah. you know? And so where would the... I mean, maybe the bones and the hair, right? I mean, you would find that in, in the dirt, I think. But but even if that went away, like, where's the armor and the swords and the, you know what I mean? Just yeah. anything. Right, right, you right. Know? So that, that's, yeah. that's, that's probably, if there were a smoking gun for me, that to me was like, boom. That, that was probably the domino that started everything else. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that was, that was the big one. Um, Have you read John Sorensen's work? Not as much as I would like to, but... Because, uh, you know, if I were channeling John Sorensen, I think, I think he would say, actually, there's lots of archaeological or textual evidence that the Book of Mormon is an ancient book, right? The, 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 there's traces in the book or there's traces. Uh, and cer- certainly there's no sort of remains that say, like, you know, this is Nephite, right? Of course. And, 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 but there's theories, though, yeah, is what I see from Sorensen. Sure. There's theories and, like, this is where this could have happened. Right. And, you know what I mean? And there's lots of archaeological remains of, of people in the Americas. Oh, of course. Right. Yeah, but but not in the time of of when the Nephites and the Lamanites would have lived. It's more like when I would go to the ruins... Although like the Elmet culture is, you know, in that same time period, right? Previous. Well, I know they found uh, ruins that date back to 15,000 years ago in Texas. Yeah. But that's not right, right, Book, Ameri- right, Book of Mormon right. times. Yeah. But I'm just saying that, yeah, <clears throat> they found some stuff, but it just... It's not the Book of Mormon people, you know? And so, I, I, I don't know. To know, right? <laughs> I mean, when it's in the millions and you talk about them burying their swords, you know, and the streets that they would have had, I mean, they're talking about giant yeah. civilizations, man. The, I mean, they had to have had, you know, they had chariots. Talk about and, fortifications and cities. Yeah, and, and so, sort of I don't know. It's, it's, that's to me where faith is redefined. You know, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It, and so that section's a big one for yeah. me. Um, things like horses, cattle, oxen, sheep, swine, goats, elephants, wheel, like yeah. all that stuff just didn't exist before Columbus, and it's in the Book of Mormon. Right. And so, just no archaeologist would right. be able to stand by the Book of Mormon as a historical record. Um, right. So yeah, I don't know if I can give you okay. That's fine, but I, I, you know, it, and the anachronisms. It, I, I, I'd say that same thing about verbiage, right? I mean, Joseph only has the words that he has, right? And, that's and, true. And so, so if they're describing an animal, a South American animal, mm-hmm. let's say, mm-hmm. and Joseph doesn't have the word for it, what words are you going to use? Right, and and that's where you think where where you know the tapir comes, and you know it's a tapir knows, instead of right? a horse, and all knows, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I could see one or two or three things, but like. But like sheep, swine, goats, elephants, like elephants, 
Like, you know, like, like that's, that? sure. <laughs> what would that be? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, so, right, right. But, you know, anyway, so. Right, and, and, and I do know that some of this stuff is disputed, like the still and the iron. and Of course, and there are like there that. are a couple things that are yeah, yeah, yeah. silk right, right. and stuff. Right, right, right. Was it disingenuous for Grow to point uh, Trevor to Sorensen? No. no, I don't. It's not disingenuous because what he was saying is this isn't my area of specialties. My area of specialties is in, in, in history and specifically this early 19th century history and it's not in archaeology. So he was just citing again and again, I'm not an archaeologist. We have archaeologists. Go look at them. So, but if you I know think, that Sorensen's awful. Well, maybe he doesn't know. He's not an archaeologist. I don't know. You know, I That's don't know. A ch- okay. Glenn? It, That's yes, why it's not don't matter. Just... Well, it's not, it's not disingenuous at all because he's, he's saying if you want to believe in the church and you're having trouble with these things, go, go try this. Go try this. Go try this. I, I, will, I will try to help you um, keep all of these problems on a shelf if that's really what you want to do. And so I'll suggest going to Sorensen or doing these other things. I, I think it's unreasonable for, for us to expect that he, having seen all these things, he comes to the same conclusion that we've come to. And if he doesn't, then there's something wrong with okay. that. I, I think that's we, that's we have to accept that that's fair. he's perfectly valid in, in where he's chosen to uh, rest in, in, with his faith and, and his belief in the church. I just think that if we all know that Sorensen's, uh, if, if reasonable, smart people and all the secular archaeologists know that Sorensen's work has no credibility, that should inform the conversation. You should at least give a disclaimer that's like, check out Sorensen, even though every single non-Mormon archaeologist thinks he's crazy, you know, if they look at his work. But check him out. You know, I think, I think it merits that sort of disclaimer in, a, in an informed world. That's just except, my opinion. Except that what, what does he want? What does Matthew Grow want for Trevor? I wants him to stay in the church and believe. Well, he, I, he probably wants Trevor to be comfortable with whatever he chooses, you know, but I mean, Matthew Grow seemed like a pretty pretty cool guy but but i you know so i i i think it's unreasonable to expect him to give that kind of or to have that i don't i i don't see anything from what matthew Grow says that would indicate that he views Sorensen the way that you just described yeah yeah but i think he i think i think it's reasonable to say that Sorensen is incredible i mean john hamer you started with that position that he's sort of a laughing stock amongst informed you know, archaeologists, Mesoamerican archaeologists like Michael Coe. He's literally a laughingstock. And that's not Right, but I'm just saying that... Gro knows that. Gro knows about the Coe interview. Come on. Okay, I don't... I'm I'm just saying what he was saying was he's not an archaeologist, he's a historian. It's a different thing. Really quickly, about anachronisms, when when Gro says Joseph only has the words he has, didn't he use the word didn't Joseph use the word curlum and kumamum and all these weird words for coins? Isn't it true that in the Book of Mormon, Joseph comes up with words that he just gets out of nowhere? I, I wrote the same note down. <laughs> so in other words, when he was saying that same thing, well, what would he, what would he, he's seen, he doesn't maybe know the words for llama or, or well, no, wait, he, he's like saying elephant, but because he didn't know what a llama was or something like that. And yet, like you say, when there's a, there are counter examples in the Book of Mormon where when that's a thing that he doesn't know what it is, you use a word that is presumably from the text, a foreign word, right? So. And isn't the and narrative that Joseph saw the words right, before right. he wrote them down? Is that, that right, no, Glenn? That's, well, that's what I thought too. Yeah, that, that he asked the question in here, 
something like how how would Joseph Smith know what to write? Well, he would read the word that God put in front of him. Exactly. If that's if that's if that's what you know, and he could spell it the way a phonetic spelling that God would have given him. But so but so but so how can Clark say something like that and not hear how ridiculous it sounds? Exactly. Well, but I'm asking it as a real question, not as a rhetorical device to call him stupid. Why is it? Sorry, Glenn, I keep interrupting you. I don't oh, know that's okay. You get in a room and argue or something. Um, oh, we argue? Okay. No, no, no. Just yeah. for fun. I'll tell you facts don't matter and you can argue. Um, <laughs> no, so I, to answer your question, I spent a lot of time with believing Mormon fundamentalists and this last weekend, especially with faithful FLDS, I got to spend some time with them. And I, I think that I'm getting really good at paying attention to these dynamics of, of talking to people who really, really believe and, and come from a different worldview than I do. And so I was paying attention to this conversation and seeing how Clark engaged versus how Matthew Grow engaged. And it was so interesting to me because they were really having two separate conversations in my yeah. And um, so Clark, this is a word I've termed for it, is called like the faith force field. Like when you get all of these facts, so Grow and Trevor are having this conversation about all these issues. And I think Clark couldn't hear those issues. Like he was there and he was nodding and he could hear the words, but like he didn't, the faith force field is up. So he, it's kind of like bouncing off. So he's hearing, oh, they're having a discussion, but I am so firm in my faith that there are no problems. There are no problems. There are no problems. And so I think we got it. When we look at how Clark engaged, it's a completely different conversation. Yeah, definitely. When they, um, when they talk about DNA, does, does anybody want to just summarize their reaction to the DNA conversation? Basically they're saying, we don't know Lehi's DNA. It could have been swamped by, by other people. Maybe there were lots of people before the Nephites and the Mulekites. Anybody want to comment on the treatment of DNA just really briefly before we jump on? Is it, it's is it a long time example of those not appearing in the Book of Mormonites, right? So it's like this asterisk. The majority of the people go entirely unmentioned in the text. So they do mention when they encounter people like the people of Mulek who aren't, who would just have Hebrew DNA since they're from, from Judea, right? And so they, but they mention that. They mention when they encounter the last uh, of the Jaredites, but then they have somehow failed to mention the fact that there's this large uh, population of pre-existing indigenous people that have crossed the Bering Strait that are not being mentioned in the text. So that's how modern in, in reaction to the fact that the DNA evidence is, does, didn't prove out, that's how they've distorted reading the text. So that's the same, same apologetic stuff that's been around for a long time. And I just want to point out that Elder Clark was wrong when he talked about the Mulekites having come to the New World from a completely different place. We know that uh, well, we know the Mulekites came from right. a different place, and so... <laughs> <laughs> they, they, you know, te textu yeah, te textually, they, they came, they, they both came from Jerusalem. Um, so he was factually incorrect there, but it didn't have any impact on his testimony, which is more evidence that facts do not matter. I know, and that's why I was like, <laughs> cinnamon roll. Like, I just want to hug you and put you over here, go check on the children in the nursery because this is not a conversation for you. And, and, and again, that sounds super condescending, but this is what we're dealing with, right? We, this is why people are going to the CES letter because their, their leadership talks, doesn't even know the facts. Oh, gosh, we, we need a different word now at this point. Yeah. I'll just say Jamie Hannah's handy. Uh, is going crazy about the DNA discussion. She, she shepherds a really good DNA conversation on Mormon stories, so please check that out. 
Shout out to Jamie Hannis Handy. Uh, Julie Lester says, John Hamer uh, makes me have hope for humanity. Um, nice job, John Hamer, for giving her, for giving her some hope. Uh, uh, lots of people giving love for Lindsay. Glenn, I'm sorry, I've not seen one shout out of love for you. <laughs> not one. <laughs> or me. That, that's, not, that's not what I'm going for. <laughs> <laughs> not, not going for the love. No. That's good. Okay. Um, and I just want, I think it's interesting. I love that, you, Glenn. I love I, you. I love you too, Glenn. Thanks. Um, Hi. I did think it was interesting that <laughs> hey, John. John just said that. <laughs> hey, you know what? I've got a new ringtone. I love that, you, Glenn. Love you, Glenn. Love you, Glenn. I love that, you, Glenn. I think it's interesting that Clark didn't speak up until like the 39-minute mark. So we went 40 minutes into the conversation and Clark, Clark stayed silent. And then as soon as he speaks up, as you mentioned, Glenn, maybe he's, he kind of uh, doesn't always know what he's talking about, which is true for me, so I can't fault him either. Um, all right, so, so we'll, we'll go ahead and leave the, a lot of the truth claim stuff. Um, it, it quickly moved into a discussion about what profits are. Trevor basically saying, look, if there's all these errors, if, if the brethren can't just ask if it's true, what's the point of having profits? Don't profits talk to God? And then Grow quickly says, oh, well, what does it mean to be a prophet? I think we should talk about that. And, um, and then Clark goes in and talks about the process for blacks in the priesthood and how it was this long process that involves a still small voice and that it's really a lot, in, in many cases, it's really a lot like any of our conversations with God, meaning that it's wrought with uh, inaccuracies and, and, and can be overturned and can be wrong at any point. But communication happens. Okay, Lindsay, I want to give you first take on this. That whole conversation about prophets and divine communication, that's not talking about faith mattering, uh, or the facts mattering. Did you have any reaction to that part of the conversation? I mean, I feel like this is the trickiest part of Mormonism because I know a lot of prophets now in the work that I do. I get to meet a lot of prophets. And I mean a lot of prophets. I was just emailing one yesterday. Um, I'm not going to give you his URL, although he'd probably love that. There are a lot of prophets because of this. And, and I say, um, well, would your arguments apply to all of those who, you know, prophets that Mormonism has divine revelation and personal revelation, and we have priesthood authority. And because of that, that's a recipe to make profits, right? Uh, so from my perspective, that is how I heard it. Oh, this is so interesting. Would these arguments apply to, you know, maybe the prophet down in Manti or the prophet down in Parowan or the prophet up in Canada? Um, that, that's how I see it. The way that they talked about Monson was really interesting or the LDS prophet sort of like, but look how, I think at one point Clark, I don't know if this is in the conversation. He's like, but look how many temples we have. The number of temples we have today are prophetic. But and I was like, oh man, I feel like we could get a little bit more creative, set our, by, our bar a little higher on what we expect of prophets. But that, those are my thoughts. Uh, I just want to step in really quick. Glenn, we've had several people say that Glenn is amazing. Jennifer, Julie, and Becky all love Glenn. Scott, <laughs> says, Scott says Glenn is okay. Glenn is okay. Glenn is okay. So, Glenn, your stock is rising. Any, <laughs> any other reactions to this kind of issue about what profits are and Sort of, it seems like they're defining down what a prophet means. Isn't that what they're doing? They're discounting. Glenn, why don't you talk about that? <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't, I don't, 
I don't really have anything more to say than I think we've already said. I, you know, to me, it, it, I, 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 once it got into like arguing over like what is profits, what is, you know, there were several things that, that he brought up. It just seems like it devolved into arguments where you say, well, this is how I see it. Well, this is how I see it. And there wasn't really any consensus or agreement on how we're going to define things, you know, and, and, you know, so, so why, why would Trevor say that I have an expectation that a prophet would act talk to God, way? talk yeah. to God. Yeah. Like talk to God directly and get, um, you know, direct, like clear direction on everything. I, I think it's, I, I, I just don't think that there's any real um, smoking gun, right or wrong way to take this when it's a faith claim for a religion and a church. And, and what they're saying is sure. we accept that this church is led by prophets and the way that it exists right now is completely acceptable to us as evidenced by the fact that we're still members, sure. faithful members of this church. Sure. The only caveat I'd say is that many of us were taught that prophets literally speak to God, that that communication yeah, so is that. like yeah. the bat so, phone. And so, so people that. come by that honestly. Yeah. And that's why they believe. They actually follow the prophet because they think the prophet's talking to God, not because the prophet gets impressions with feelings and half the time is right and half the time is wrong, just like the rest of us. Right. That's but, just not what we're bought. That's not what we bought into. That's not why, what we were sold. And, and, and you have that experience because you were there, you were in that mindset and now you're not right. Yep. But why, right. why would you expect people who are still in that mindset to be I, anywhere other than in that mindset? I don't, I just think, I think Trevor's making a fair point. Yeah. I, I don't think he's not making a fair point. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I think, I think they're both, they're both sitting across each other with this huge abyss yeah, but, but yeah, yeah. between sure. them for sure why, for sure why are you attacking everyone glenn yeah. <laughs> it's just like it's like Lindsay and trevor they just can't make a fair point in glenn's book <laughs> <laughs> i thought no but i think that actually what um the admission here that you know that clark has as a member of the first quorum of the 70 was fairly this was maybe is one of those places, you know, like um, Trevor was saying, well, he didn't think that this is anything more than they would want to say out loud. I think Matt Groh would like to say most of the things or has said a lot of these things out loud in the essays, but the, but this part where um, he says people ha imagine in the church where as you go up the hierarchy um, that there is, you know, that there's going to be some kind of a difference in process of personal revelation, personal inspiration. And he says that assumption is 100% wrong. You know, which is to say, so in other words, it's the same exact process up and down. And so that's an admission that should be printed in the, in the, in the Sunday school manuals, you know, right. and that's not, and they says, and, the, and they even ask themselves, well, you know, can we know how a prophet acts? Can we know? How could we possibly know? Of course we can't know. And I was thinking, of course you can know. You can simply ask the guy, <laughs> you know, in other words, the guy's right there and he could write it in the manual. And in fact, that's what, you know, um, you know, in terms of other prophets, Lindsay has been emailing prophets. John DeLint sat down. Um, what, what's the quote from Steve Joseph Beasley? Smith? That's like the 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 first principle of the gospel is knowing the nature of God. There's something like that of of knowing the true nature of God, the characteristics of God. The the Mormon God puts um, uh, obstacles in people's way intentionally, and and the Mormon God does not always reveal everything right at once. In, in, in the narratives of the Mormon God. He will leave, the, he, he'll put in a probationary period for Adam and Eve when they can't eat the fruit of the tree and you know maybe in his mind, oh, later you'll be able to. He'll put in a probationary period where blacks can't have the priesthood, but at a later time when he's decided, oh, it's okay. That, that's the Mormon narrative for God. 
So right. if, if that's the Mormon narrative for God, why are we expecting that God's going to tell us everything that we want to know right in this minute right now? I think that's an unreasonable position for an ex-Mormon to take if they've been Mormon and they know this is how Mormons think that God is. You can't say, well, why didn't God tell us this? Why didn't he give us a better help code? Why didn't he do these kinds of things? Well, the, the Mormon God doesn't reveal all of his reasoning for why he does what he does other than I, I, he's bringing about the immortality and eternal life of man. And that includes giving people obstacles and testing how they're going to react to things. So it's completely consistent with the Mormon God that he wouldn't reveal everything right there, that he would right. intentionally put ambiguity into the system. But the, the admission here that I think how many is people important. like me now, huh? <laughs> the ambition, <laughs> the admission that I think is important is not, I mean, they made that point back to him. They said, you know, you don't expect God to now sit down and answer the CES letter point for point for point or whatever. But the, the more important admission here is that there is no direct speaking. They said they kept on going back. No, we'll say it's communication. And they say that it's 100% wrong to think that it's any different from the process that every member of the church is having. And they point to the story, the only overt narrative story that we have for it, which is this sitting around praying about official declaration number two and eventually feeling good about it. And that's how yeah. revelation comes. So the admission here is no direct talking from God, not, not, not like, not, a, not an encyclopedia. In other words, we're not getting encyclopedias that are explaining everything. It's none is the answer. Lindsay. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm going to renege on something that I just said, uh, where I said the validation is important because I was just thinking about this. Validation is important if you want to keep people in the church, right? That if, if Matthew Groh and Elder Clark wanted to keep him in the church, they should have not argued facts. They should have just validated him. That's my position. However, what I think that we as, as people who question um, are probably wrong about is wanting their validation. Because when we're wanting their validation, really what we're wanting is their hierarchical validation. That's what we want. We want them to put their stamp on like, you found out these facts. You're right about it. Um, that's, that's what we want. Okay. Well, welcome to the dark side, Lindsay. <laughs> well, All that's right. what I'm saying. I'm just saying, um, sorry, my kids were knocking on the door. Uh, val when we want validation, and that's what Trevor was really saying, like, here are the facts. If we still are looking for the church to tell us, yeah, you're right, those facts aren't true. Maybe that's a problem on our end because they're not going to do it. And maybe we don't need them to. That's all I'm saying. And that is a fantastic point to end this new part one on, because I, th that's just perfect. We really don't need them to validate our choices. I understand why we, we, we go for that, but we really, really don't. So anyway, end of part one. Now, keep in mind that one of the reasons this is being broken up into parts is because Infants on Thrones does this like bare bones as cheap as we can get server to host our stuff on. We're hoping to be able to upgrade our uh, infrastructure. That takes money. And for the last five years, basically, we've been putting our own money into this project. It's getting to a point now where we'd like some help and some support. So we're asking you to help support Infants on Thrones. If you want to donate at our website, it's a PayPal donation. It'll help us improve our infrastructure. All right. And uh, now let's go listen to part two. Or maybe just take a nap. I don't know.